Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Ezra. Comes right after 2 Chronicles. In fact, not to confuse you, I'm actually going to read for my sermon text. I'm going to begin at the very end of Ezra, uh, at the end of 2 Chronicles, and I'm going to read through the first chapter of Ezra. My reason for doing that is because you can see how incredibly well connected these two books are. I mean, honestly, the last few, the last paragraph of 2 Chronicles is almost word for word the same as the first paragraph of Ezra. So that you clearly see the story is not missing a beat. We're going straight from Chronicles, straight into Ezra, and I want you to see the flow of thought as we, as we uh, see that. Second, so I'm really going to begin in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15. 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15, I'll read over to the next page, Ezra chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he, that's the Lord, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons, until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath, it fulfilled seventy years." Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him, let him go up. Now let's turn to Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. The next word should sound familiar. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the mouth of the Lord, excuse me, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites. Everyone whose spirit God had stirred up, stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. 
And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, and this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Heavenly Father, as we once again go back to where we were last Sunday, to what is for for many of us, and what has often been for me a very remote part, a murky part of the Old Testament history, I pray, God, that you would show us both what this text teaches in its context and also how we can rightly apply what we read here to our lives today that exist about 2,600 years after uh, the events that take place in this chapter. So help us, God, for your glory, for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a word of introduction again. I did not say this last week as we started Ezra. Um, We are not totally sure who wrote the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, Jewish tradition speculates that Ezra himself was the author, and that's probably the best guess that we have is that Ezra was the one behind much of the book. Uh, Nehemiah was also probably involved since both Ezra has sections of Ezra that are from his personal journals, and Nehemiah has sections that are from his personal journals, so it seems as though they were involved in the composition of these books. And you can see they follow right on the tail of First and Second Chronicles. Now, let me just remind you, this goes back a few months. I want to remind you of something that we talked about when we were in the, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Remember, we talked about the theme of the Bible. One of the ways of putting your Bible together is the theme of the kingdom of God. And I, I, I tried to beat this in everyone's head for a couple of weeks. I, I said this over and over again, so I'm going to say something I hope you remember if you were here. But remember, the kingdom of God, we defined it as God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and experiencing God's blessing. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, and experiencing God's blessing. And remember how we saw that we saw a pattern of the kingdom with Adam and Eve in the garden. You had God's people, in God's place, Eden, under God's rule, experiencing God's blessing, but they sinned, and for a time they were no longer God's people. They were no longer in God's place. They had disobeyed His rule, and they were under the curse, remember? And as you trace the Bible, God says to Abraham, I'm going to rebuild this kingdom through your family. I'm going to bless all the nations through your family. Your your offspring are going to be my people. The promised land is the place. I'm going to give you my rule, the Mosaic law, and my ruler, the Davidic king, and you are going to, if you obey, you're going to be under so much blessing, you will not know what to do with yourself. When David was king, my, the, the blessing started coming. A man after God's own heart, a lowly shepherd, the runt of the family, remember, The one Samuel thought, surely this one can't be the king. Surely one of his big, strong, tall brothers is going to be king. But no, the, the, the young man David is the one to be king. God took him out of obscurity. He raised him to the point of the king. And there's David prospering in the kingdom. God's people, Israel, were in God's place, the promised land. They had God's rule to a degree. They seemed like they were obeying it, and there was blessing coming. And yet David has that horrible sin with Bathsheba, which causes a sword to enter into his family line, 
that would never depart for a long time. But then he put Solomon on the throne, and Solomon was the king of peace. And during his days, there was so much gold in Jerusalem, silver was treated like it was, you know, like we would treat gravel. That's how silver was treated during the days of Solomon. He was so wise. He built this beautiful palace, and he built this beautiful temple, and God's glory filled the temple, and there were hundreds of animals offered, and God's glory was so brilliant that people were almost afraid to draw near, and Solomon prays this wonderful prayer in 1 Kings 8, saying, God, may all the nations of the earth see how great you are. May they come and pray to you, and may you answer their prayers. May we be a light to the Gentiles. May the, the, the nations come and see how great you are. And the kingdom of God was beginning to be built. It was looking so promising. And then 1 Kings 11 comes. Solomon married many wives, hundreds of women, making alliances with false gods. His heart was led astray from a sincere devotion to Yahweh. He set up other idols for other gods for his wives and that he also worshiped. And then after Solomon dies, the kingdom is split. And eventually Babylon comes and destroys the kingdom for the rebellion of Israel. It is looking hopeless. Now, listen, we've got to think the way a Jewish mind would work at this time in history. If Jerusalem is destroyed, if the temple has been burned and the house of God destroyed and the walls torn down, that means God's very purposes for his kingdom are in absolute rubble and they're demolished. This is a hopeless looking time. And many were beginning to doubt that God was even in control. And God says, listen, I was in control when Nebuchadnezzar stood outside the wall of the city. In fact, he was my servant that I sent to you. Why? Because I was bringing judgment for the sins that Israel deserved but I'm not going to leave you in exile. I'm going to do a second exodus. I'm going to bring you back despite all odds, despite all appearances. I'm going to do what is otherwise impossible. And I'm going to get this little minority group in Babylon to be sent back home, and I'm going to begin the rebuilding process in Jerusalem. That's the setup to the book. When all looks hopeless and lost, the Lord stirs hearts to action. So the message today just has two points. I'm adapting these two points from a commentator. Uh, I don't even remember which commentator it was at this point, but I'm adapting these two points from one commentator. And uh, point number one is this. The Lord stirs up Cyrus to action. The Lord stirs up Cyrus to action. So look with me again at the opening verses here. Uh, Ezra 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus... King of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it into writing, and we'll read more in just a moment. So listen to this. Don't turn here. This is Jeremiah 25, verse 9. Listen to this. God speaking, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and then God calls Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. That's amazing. And God says, and I will bring them against the land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations, and I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. God says, I am the God of Nebuchadnezzar, and when I need him to come for judgment, I will stir him up. He is my servant. Even when Nebuchadnezzar was in rebellion, God ultimately was working all that for his good, even the judgment against Israel. And after 70 years have passed, God stirs up another pagan king, the King Cyrus. I, I want you to see this. If you're not familiar with, with some parts of Isaiah, this may be new. Others, this may be familiar. But turn with me to Isaiah 44. 
I think this is an astonishing section of Scripture. Isaiah 44. There could be a temptation with these stories to almost overwhelm ourselves with information. I don't want to overwhelm us with information, but I'm just going to add a little footnote about Isaiah for a moment. I love the book of Isaiah. There were times in church history where Isaiah was called the fifth gospel because it is so full of Jesus. And let me just say this. Isaiah wrote his his prophecy around the year 700 BC. Now just follow me. 700 BC. The destruction of Jerusalem happened, I remember BC, we're counting down when we go forward, okay? So 700 BC, the destruction of Jerusalem happened in 586 BC. So over about 100 years after Isaiah wrote is when uh, Babylon first showed up, 605 BC, took Daniel into captivity. So Isaiah is writing about, let's say about 95 years before Babylon first shows up. And then a little later, they'll destroy Jerusalem. Here's the amazing prophecy that God gives to Isaiah. When you read Isaiah 1 to 39, you get sneak peeks of it. But when you get to Isaiah 40 to the end of the book, Isaiah 40 to 66, God gives Isaiah the ability to see well into the future. And Isaiah sees from the year 700, and he sees straight past the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. Remember, we're counting down. And he sees all the way to the year 538 and beyond. It's a long time after Isaiah. And what does he see? You know what? Just... I want to add a little extra something. Turn to the left to Isaiah 40. I just want to show you this because this is, this is really amazing. Isaiah looks into the future. He sees the year 538 BC, and then he sees beyond that to Jesus, you'll see. But he skips past exile. You'll see that Babylon is mentioned in the last paragraph of Isaiah 39. He mentions Babylon, a little sneak peek of what's coming. But then he skips past the Babylonian captivity. And that's where the amazing, wonderful words of Isaiah 40 begin after exile. So wonderful. Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And uneven ground shall become level. And through the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all the flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You, you, you know those verses probably, right? They're quoted in the New Testament. What this is picturing is Israel coming back from Babylonian captivity, traveling the thousand miles through the wilderness, getting back to Jerusalem. And God says, I'm going to take the mountains. I'm going to flatten them. I'm going to take the low places. I'm going to make them flat. I'm going to make it easy for you to return home. I'm going to bring glory. And when, when this happens, when Israel begins streaming back from exile, all the nations will know Yahweh is fulfilling his word to his people. That, that's what we're seeing here in this particular passage. Now skip ahead to chapter 44. Isaiah is going to show us in chapters 40 to 55, I'm going to lose everybody here with these numbers, okay? (laughs) I get lost when people just start saying numbers. So from Isaiah 40 to 55, Isaiah is picturing the return from Babylonian exile, okay? From Isaiah, you should just read it this week. It's just, you can't get better than Isaiah 40 to 55. Just read it. It's glorious. It's just this picture of redemption and God bringing Israel home. Isaiah 40 to 55. And what you're going to see is there are two deliverers in these chapters. There are two deliverers. 
One is a shocking deliverer. They're both shocking. But one of them is shocking because one deliverer is not even a believer. And God calls him his Messiah, his anointed one. And it's Cyrus. He says, Cyrus does not even know me, but I'm going to raise him up as my anointed to deliver them. And does he deliver them? Physically, does he deliver them? Yes, he delivers them physically from Babylonian bondage and brings them back home, just like Ezra says. And there's a second deliverer in Isaiah 40 to 55. You probably know Isaiah 53. This one, this deliverer is called the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh, the suffering servant of Yahweh. And here's one of the points that Ezra and Nehemiah are going to make so painfully, it, brings, it can bring tears sincerely to your eyes reading this. This is, this is what you see. Cyrus was raised up by God. He's called his Messiah, his Messiah, his anointed one. Now, lots of people are called anointed ones in the Old Testament. doesn't mean you're Christ. doesn't mean you're Jesus. But he calls Cyrus his anointed one because he's going to deliver the people from bondage. He's going to bring them back home to rebuild the temple. This is glorious. And Ezra and Nehemiah celebrate this. But here is the sad reality of Ezra and Nehemiah. The people come out of bondage, and we find out before very long that the Babylonian captivity did not fix the human heart. The same kind of sins Israel committed before exile that drove them into exile, guess what? They're committing again. The men begin to marry women who worship foreign gods and bring the foreign gods into their home with their children. That happens in Ezra and in Nehemiah. And in both places, Ezra and Nehemiah almost flip out. They have a holy flip out moment. Ezra says, Ezra begins to tear his clothes. He begins to fast and mourn. He falls on the ground and says, we are being unfaithful. This is the very reason God sent us into exile. We're going to do it all over again. Nehemiah is not as kind as Ezra. He starts tearing people's hair and he starts hitting people over the head. I'm not kidding. You can go look it up. Uh, There is some holy uh, anger, kind of like Jesus in the temple. Nehemiah says, are you crazy? This is the very thing we are not to do. You're going to ruin the whole thing. This is why there's a great anticlimax in both of these books. Because God brings a physical deliverer through Cyrus and he brings them home. This is going to be the rebuilding of the kingdom. We're going to have God's people in God's place under God's ruler, a Davidic king, and experiencing God's eternal blessing. And what happens? The people can't keep their act together. The people begin to sin. They begin to rebel. They begin to doubt God. And it is heartbreaking. And so Isaiah says there's not just one deliverer, Cyrus. There's another deliverer. We need another deliverer. Guess what he is? He is the servant of Yahweh. He is the suffering servant. And he's not going to come in the time of Ezra. He's going to come down the road. But we must preserve the seed of Israel. We must preserve the line of Messiah so that not the pagan king, the anointed Cyrus, but the true and holy spotless anointed one could come. They didn't know this at the time, perhaps, in all detail, but Isaiah hints at this. He talks about this. The virgin will conceive and give birth. You will call his name Emmanuel, God with us, and he is going to be beaten to a bloody pulp. Wait, God's deliverer? His deliverer greater than Cyrus is going to be beaten to a bloody pulp. He's going to be disfigured beyond human recognition? This makes no sense, God. Why would you do that? He's the Davidic king. He's going to rule in David's throne. Why is he being beaten? Why is he bearing our sins? And there's the answer. He's going to take our sins on himself, and he's going to do what no previous king, not even David and Solomon, can do. He's going to give the gift of his Holy Spirit to all his people. He's going to regenerate all the hearts of his people in the new covenant so that no one will have to say to his neighbor, know the Lord, because what? They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, and I will bear their iniquities and take their sins away. See, this is what we're looking for. 
But in the meantime, we see Cyrus is clearly predicted. Look at Isaiah 44. Truly an amazing text here. Verse 24 begins, this is Isaiah 44, 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from, your womb, from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns, back, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Now listen, this is way ahead of time. Here's what God predicts who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. That's what Ezra is going to be doing in Nehemiah. And I will raise up their ruins. How is God going to do that? Verse 24, who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. Who says of, is that not incredible? What's the next word? Cyrus. This was written a hundred years before Cyrus was born. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. So God is holding Cyrus by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. Stop there. God is saying ahead of time, I know who the deliverer is going to be. I'm choosing him. I'm naming him ahead of time. Now, this next story I'm going to just mention, there's no way to prove that this actually happened, but you remember Josephus, first century non-Christian Jewish historian. Remember him, Josephus? Not a believer. He's a Pharisee. I don't know if what he wrote here was true. I have no way to validate this, but it comes from the first century. Here's what Josephus, not a Christian, says about the Cyrus prophecy. I don't know if it's right. It's what he said. Quote, Josephus writes this, quote, this prophecy was made known to Cyrus. So during his reign, he says the Jewish leaders in Babylon showed the prophecy to Cyrus. Like, hey, hey, Cyrus, uh, you got to see this. This was made known to Cyrus by his reading the book, which Isaiah left behind uh, of his prophecies. This was foretold by Isaiah 140 years before the temple was demolished. Accordingly, when Cyrus read this, a prophecy about himself written 100 years before he was born. When Cyrus read this and admired the divine power, an earnest desire and an ambition seized him to fulfill what was so written in it. Now, I don't know for sure if that's true, but it certainly could have happened. We know that the Jews living in Babylon had God's word with them. And when Cyrus shows up and takes over, it would be pretty tempting, would it not, to say, hey, have you seen the book of Isaiah before? Uh, why? No, I don't care about Jewish prophecy. You're going to care about this one. Uh, you're in it. <laughs> you're named a couple of times by Isaiah, and he's been dead for a long time. Show me more. Uh, I, I'm sure Cyrus would have said. So that is an amazing uh, prophecy there uh, in Isaiah. Now, let me keep going. Isaiah 45, verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you, Cyrus, by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. He was not a believer. Verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, Cyrus, though you do not know me. 
that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Skip down to verse 13, again talking about Cyrus. I have stirred him up. Does that sound familiar? Ezra 1, the Lord stirred up. Same Hebrew word. I stirred up the heart of Cyrus. Here it is again, Isaiah 45, 13. I have stirred him up, that's Cyrus, in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Amazing, amazing prophecy. Let's turn back to Ezra chapter 1. Let me just repeat a point from last Sunday. You do understand God's word can be trusted because God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. He makes predictions that seem insane to the people living at the time. And then he does them. He makes them happen. Now again, let me just, let's get back in the Israel mindset. Okay, please come with me here back to the year, let's say it's 540 BC. Okay, this is when Daniel was still alive. Daniel was old man, around 80 years old. Let's say that you're living in Babylon, okay, uh, 540 BC, and you're looking at Jeremiah's prophecy. This is what Daniel was doing. He was reading Jeremiah, and Jeremiah says in about 70 years, you're coming back home, and you're thinking, there's no way. There is no way. I mean, we're just, we're a couple years shy of 70 years. We're supposed to be home. There's no way. Here's what would have to happen for God's word to come true in the next couple years. This is impossible. God has to raise up another king who's going to defeat Babylon, the most powerful nation in the world, that king is going to have to somehow give us all of our gold back, all of our temple treasures, all these amazing cups and vessels and plates that are worth who knows how much money. They're going to give them to us and then send us back home so that we can rebuild our temple and they're going to have to finance it because we've got no money. There's no way that could happen. What happens? The news shows up a couple days later. Cyrus is defeating forces in the northwest. He's now defeating forces in the north. Uh Uh-oh, now he's coming down towards the east. He's coming to Babylon, and guess what? Do you remember Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar's feast? We all use the phrase, the writing on the wall. I saw like some secular thing the other day. They talk about the writing on the wall. Everyone uses that phrase. Remember this? What's Belshazzar? Belshazzar? I think I'm saying his name right. What, what was he doing? He was the son of the king. Uh, his dad was out of town for a while, so he was reigning as the second in command. And while he's there, he gets all the temple vessels from Israel out. But we're going to have a party to make fun of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Let's get all those temple vessels out, those pl- priceless uh, cups and plates that Ezra mentions by name in this chapter. They throw this big party. Little to his knowledge, the Persian army is gathering outside. And as is known from both secular history and from the Bible, what happens? They divert the river that flowed through the, through the city, and the soldiers come in through the riverway. It was about up to a man's thigh, and they walk in without basically taking any, without any real fighting happening. They walk into the feast, they come in where all these men are drunk, and they kill Belshazzar, Belshazzar, or whatever his name was, they kill him. And I, I get Daniel's name, Belshazzar, and the other guy's name messed up, but I, I, don't, I don't remember how to say his name. They, they come in the middle of the night in this feast, and they kill him, and Daniel's there and sees it, and guess what? The Persians have taken over, and within a very short time, Cyrus issues his decree for all of them to head home and to begin to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. This is absolutely amazing that God is keeping his word to the very uh, word. So just a quick word of application to the gospel here. 
In Sunday school, we looked at Israel during the Exodus. They are stuck at the Red Sea, and there's no way out. And does God make a way when there's no way? He does. He parts the Red Sea. When they are in Babylonian captivity, there's no way out. Does God raise up Cyrus, name him, send him, make his way successful and get the people out? Yes, he does. Well, how about this? How could God be just and also save sinners like you and me? Right? That's, that's the question of the whole Bible. How can God say to David after adultery and murder, how can Nathan say, the prophet, on God's behalf, the Lord has taken away your sin, you shall not die, to the guy who just committed adultery and murder and lied about it? And the answer is, that, doesn't, that compromises God's justice. God can't just sweep sin under the rug and act like it didn't happen because sin belittles his glory. And if God compromises his justice, he's not God. And so what does God do? God sends Jesus, the suffering servant, to bear the punishment in our place for our sins so that Romans 3 says, God can be just and also justify the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Our sin has been paid for. Justice has been upheld, but God has also delivered us. It is the unthinkable, and yet it has happened in time and space history. All right, second point of the message. So the first point was the Lord stirs up Cyrus to action. The point, second point number two, the Lord stirs up his people to action. The Lord stirs up his people to action. Let's go back to Ezra 1. I'm going to read verse 5, a wonderful verse. Ezra 1 verse 5, then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests of the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Now, just a couple comments. Number one, why aren't all 12 tribes mentioned here? You've got Judah and Jesus is going to come from Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. You've got Benjamin and you've got Levi. Where are all the other tribes? And you know probably the answer. The northern tribes, the ten tribes to the north, uh, were destroyed by Assyria. They're not, uh, they're not mentioned here. But Judah, Benjamin, and the Levites who are among them, they are the ones that are going to be freed from captivity. But let me read the verse one more time. I don't want to be tedious, but let's just hear it again. Verse 5, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. I, I told you, when I picked the book of Ezra, I was not picking it for the theme of God's providence, because we're already doing providence in Sunday school. I was like, I know, we don't need to do more on that necessarily, but yet I can't escape it. Do you see it in verse 5? My goodness. Now, here's what I'll tell you. About 50,000 people, about 50,000 of the Jews in exile returned home. We get it, we get, the next time we're in Ezra, chapter 2, we're going to read a whole bunch of names. It's going to be fantastic. We've got 70 verses of names. I don't know how to pronounce half of them. If I had trouble with Belshazzar or whatever, I'm going to have real trouble next time with these names. Try reading chapter 2 out loud. It is not easy. So pray for me for when I have to read that chapter. I'll be in big trouble. Um, I'll have to get somebody to come up here and do that for me. But uh, we, we have 50,000 people return. People estimate that was only a fraction of the, of the Jews living in Babylon. Most of them stayed in Babylon. Why is that? We're told that the ones who returned were those whom the Lord stirred to action. Now, now, this is the sovereignty of God as clearly taught as anywhere in Scripture, and it's all over the Scripture. Listen, I'll just say this as clearly as I can. I know it creates all kinds of questions that I probably can't answer, 
But let me just state it. You ready? This is clear. I think it's crystal clear in verse 5. If you don't believe me, read verse 5 over and over again. See if I'm making this up. <clears throat> Everyone whose spirit God stirred got up and went back to Israel. And nobody who God did not stir went back. I know that's a double negative. So let me say it again. Everyone whose spirit God stirred went back. Why did so many stay? God did not stir their hearts to go back. Because it says here, everyone whose spirit God stirred went, which means God has a 100% success rate in his sovereignty. If God is going to stir someone to action, he's going to get his sovereign result. And if God leaves someone to themselves, does not stir them, he's not wronging them, he's just leaving them to their own devices, they will not be stirred up and their actions will not follow. Now, this is not fatalism. I'm just telling you, this is taught in the text. This is crystal clear in this text and it's all over the Bible. It is all over the place. And so those who returned were stirred by God. No one rose up whom God did not stir and no one whom God stirred refused to go. What does this mean? It means this, human beings are responsible for their actions and God's sovereignty explains ultimately the decisions that the people make. And God's sovereignty is ultimately decisive in the decisions that are made. Now, I just want to add this in light of especially Sunday school if you're in there the last hour. Hold your spot here, and I want you to turn to Romans 9. We were in Romans 9 in Sunday school. Turn to Romans 9 and 10 just for a moment, because I want to clarify something I did not get to say in Sunday school that fits right here. <clears throat> Romans chapter 9. Now, the middle of Romans 9 teaches this doctrine very clearly, that God's sovereignty in, in salvation is very clear. But here's what I want to add that has not been said today as clearly. This in no way creates fatalism, which is the idea that I'm just going to sort of uh, not do evangelism. I'm not going to pray for the lost. I'm not going to, because God's just sort of sovereign. So I'm just going to kick back and enjoy myself and not do anything. Look at this. Romans 9 is the strongest text on sovereignty in the whole Bible, I think. And look how it begins and look how it ends. Look how it is sandwiched. Romans 9.1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are the Israelites. Now, do you hear this? In the very text where Paul talks about God's sovereignty and salvation, he begins the chapter by saying, this doesn't make you apathetic about the lost. If anything, it fires Paul up for the lost. Paul says, God is sovereign, therefore I can pray to the God who can actually save. I have unceasing anguish for my lost brothers. Look at chapter 10, the very other side of the chapter, chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Do you hear this? Paul can teach the clearest doctrine of God is sovereign in salvation. And how does he begin and end that chapter? He begins by saying, I have an unceasing anguish for my lost friends. And I pray constantly for their salvation to a God who can actually save. So if ever you hear people say, well, if God's sovereign, why should we do anything? They're misunderstanding what scripture teaches on this doctrine. The Bible's teaching on God's sovereignty never, ever, 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 are you getting the point here? Ever, diminishes by 1% the responsibility and accountability of us to do what we're called to do. It, not, 
as soon as you hear yourself saying, well, God's sovereign, therefore I don't have to pray, whatever it is, you're misunderstanding what Scripture teaches. The Bible teaches God is totally sovereign and we are completely responsible for our actions and we must pray and reach the lost and, and, and pray for those who are lost and in no way uh, minimizing our human responsibility. Let's turn back to Ezra as we come closer to a conclusion for today. Now let's, talk, let's talk about this from a human perspective. Why did so few of them return back to Jerusalem? I mean, some people speculate it might have been 10% or something, maybe less. Why did so few return? Well, let's not romanticize the journey back home. Let's, let's make this real. We read the Bible. Yeah, they traveled 1,000 miles and they got there. Woohoo! Like, you just read it like, real quick. Like, you read, it's one sentence. It's just one sentence. They traveled, they got back. Well, who wouldn't go on that trip? Well, let's just stop for a second. They don't have airplanes. They don't have cars. They don't have police. Okay? Here's what you have. Here's what you have. You have a bunch of people who are relatively poor getting together in a caravan, traveling a thousand miles through the wilderness, following the rivers. So they go up north, come down south, and go back to where the, Medi- uh, to the, where the, uh, where the Mediterranean Sea is. A thousand miles. We're told later that it took Ezra four solid months to make this journey. Four months. How would you like to do this? Leave all that you know here in Athens and walk, and maybe a few people had some animals because they got some beasts, they're told. So maybe some of them had donkeys or some animals like that, camels. But you don't, not everyone's riding an animal. So a lot of people are walking. How would you like to walk from here to a thousand miles from here to a city you've never been to in your life? Because remember, these exiles, almost all of them were born in Babylon. They've never been to Jerusalem. They have no sentimental feelings about Jerusalem. They haven't seen it before. You're asking me to leave my established business and my security in Babylon to travel a thousand miles largely by foot to risk robbery and death and all kinds of things, disease, starvation on the way there, and then get to a city that has no walls, no temple, no king, and no protection. And then spend the next decades of our lives cobbling together what little we have to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the city, and all the while looking over our shoulder, wondering if the Samaritans or other groups are going to try to come and do some kind of attack and kill us. Does it sound very attractive from a human perspective? No, it doesn't. That's why so few went. But those whom the Lord stirred to action, they all went. And this faithful 50,000 that we'll read the names of in a future week in chapter 2, they make their way back home. And let me, let me ask you this. Are there areas in your life where you sense uh, in wisdom that it would be right to go, but you know it's going to be hard? Are, are, there, are there acts of obedience that you think that you need to do that are difficult acts of obedience. It would be far easier not to make that phone call than to make that phone call, right? Far easier just to ignore that difficult relationship, to ignore that thing that was said that last week that you don't want to have to deal with or whatever it might be. It is so easy to not do the right and difficult thing. Am I the only one that said obedience is often the harder path, isn't it? It is rarely the easier path that is what God calls us to in in his commands. Is there an area in your life where you know the Lord is asking something of you? I don't mean you're hearing a voice from heaven. I mean, in his word, applied to your life, you know the Lord is asking you to give up something. There's a habit in your life right now. You know it is not holy. You know that if other people knew about it, it would be shameful. And yet it's going to be hard to deal with that habit and to get rid of that habit. By God's grace, he has the power to help you do it. He never commands anything. He does not give the supply of grace to help you with. 
No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it when the day of testing comes. What is the area in your life where you know this is something that needs to change? Maybe it's something that needs to be added to your life. A new habit, a new action that needs to be part of your life, but you know it's going to be hard and challenging. Are you willing by God's grace to submit that to the Lord and to know that it's going to be better. It's like surgery, isn't it? Obedience is like surgery. Let me, let me see what I mean. No one looks forward to surgery, especially the closer you get to surgery, right? Like, you put it on the calendar six months out, you're not worried about it. And then you, the week of, you're like, oh boy, that's on Wednesday. And then Tuesday night, you're not sleeping so well. No, even if it's a minor surgery, right? You're just having something done with your knee or whatever it is. You're like, it's not a big operation, but you get nervous. You wake up that morning, you didn't sleep very well, right? And you're on your way there. You're like, I, I want to cancel. Can we cancel? It's not too late to cancel. Let's cancel the appointment. How many of us have made like the 6 a.m.? Like, is it too late to cancel? The doctor is waiting for you. Okay, I'm coming. So you, you get there, and then what happens? They put you under, and there is stuff happening. You don't even want to know what happens, right? There, there, there's cutting that is involved. There are all kinds of awful things that happen, and yet... When you wake up, maybe there's pain, there's, you're, there's soreness, and there's a time of uh, re recovery. But at the end, if it is done by a wise and good doctor, at the end of the day, isn't it better that you had it than that you didn't have it? Isn't there improvement in the long run? And when God asks us to do hard things, it is like surgery on our soul. He is dealing with the idol of comfort and the idol of ease. The people in Babylon were actually having it pretty good at this time. You're asking me, Lord, to give this up and to take this long journey into the unknown, just knowing that you are with us. Only a few were willing, but those whom the Lord stirred were willing. And if the Lord is stirring even in your heart, consider the fact that in the end, obedience always leads to true blessing in our knowledge, in our awareness of God. A little bit more to cover here. Verse 6, Isaiah 1. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Stop there. Does this remind you of Exodus? This is a new Exodus. Remember on their way out of Egypt, they plundered the Egyptians of gold? Same thing's happening here. They're getting all these materials. Verse 7, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus the king of Persia brought these out, and then it has here a list of the different items, gold, silver, bowls of gold, etc. All in all, 5,400, and they were brought back from Babylon to Jerusalem. I'm going to close with this. Turn with me. This is the last thing we're doing. Turn with me to Isaiah one more time. And we are going to go to Isaiah. Let's find the verse here. Isaiah 52. This is right before the suffering servant shows up. You can hear the joy as the people are returning from exile. <clears throat> Isaiah verse 52, verse, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. 
Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now I want to focus on verse 11. Depart, depart. Go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, that's Babylon, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Now, how do you apply a verse like that to us today? Seems like there's no real application. I'm not leaving Babylon. I don't have to worry about ritual cleanness. Did you know Paul quotes this verse in the New Testament and applies it to you and me? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, just listen to this. Paul says about sin and idolatry, he says, therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. Paul takes this text about leaving Babylon and applies it straight into the church. And here's what he says. We are fleeing the life we once had in our lostness. And we are running into the new life in Christ that we have now. And therefore, we should not let the things of our flesh even continue to stain our garments. Don't even touch the uncleanness of our previous life. Don't even let that stuff hold on to you at all. You're a brand plucked out of the fire. You have been saved from from Babylon. Therefore, do not adapt the characteristics and traits of this world. Fling them away as you run into the arms of the Lord Jesus and think about the new Jerusalem that is to come. Let's bow our heads together. I'm going to give you just a moment to pray quietly about anything the Lord may be dealing with you about, and then I'll pray for us and we will sing. Lord, search us and try us. See if there is any sinful way within our hearts and our minds. Lead us in the path of righteousness for your namesake. Convict us of sin. Show us what difficult acts of obedience you may have for us and give us the the, the stirring in our heart to be willing to do that. I think of Paul saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good purpose. So God, I pray you would not make us lazy. Stir our hearts, give us a longing to be more like Christ. Help us to flee from the Babylon of our pre-converted past Help not even the uncleanness of our past to stick to our clothes. Help us to fling away sins and whatever easily entangles us and to run with endurance the race that is marked out for us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. We know that obedience is sometimes a cross to bear, but on the other side of the cross, there is joy. And for the joy set before him, he went through the shame of the cross for us and for our sins. Help us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.